Amen. Lord, we do, we thank you and praise you, Lord, indeed, that our sins are washed away, separated as far as the east is from the west. You choose to remember them no more. Lord, it's incredible. You know everything we've ever done, every wicked thing we've ever done, and you love us anyway. What a great and awesome God you are. Pray as we go to your word tonight that you would be our teacher, that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. I pray that everyone who is here would realize we're here tonight by divine appointment. God, you have something you want to say to each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13. We're going to pick up on verse 16 tonight. And go through the Lord willing through the first half of chapter 14, because that's really where it all goes together. Now, uh, to catch you up, if you uh, haven't been here or you were napping last week, you know who you are. All right. So, over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the transition from the last of the prophets, Samuel, to the first of the kings, King Saul. But if you'll remember, We're going from God's anointed prophet to man's appointed king because this was not God's plan. God's plan was he's the king. And what sadly happens, though, is that, man, we want to be like other men. We want to be like the world around us. And so this whole transition from a godly prophet to an appointed king came because of the fleshly desires of man to be just like the world around them. Now, remember that to this point, God had been their king, and he was doing a great job. He had delivered them out of bondage. Excuse me. (coughs) he had spoken audibly to them from mount sinai he provided for them in the wilderness he had blessed them even in the midst of the rebellion he provided for them he rained manna down from heaven he brought water from the rock he brought them into the land of promise he supernaturally defeated their enemies remember they defeated jericho with trumpets they uh were outnumbered. Gideon was outnumbered. God brought victory. Shamgar was outnumbered. God brought victory. Caleb was outnumbered. God brought victory. He had shown them incredible grace over 400 years, seven cycles of them walking away from God, being in total rebellion, crying out to the Lord, him sending another judge, restoring them back into himself, and then walking away again. This happened seven times. It shows a great picture of the grace of God. And yet, in the midst of God's grace, they still cried out, when they should have been blown away by His grace, they cried out and said, Lord, you know, we want, a, we want a king. They're doing what's right in their own eyes, and God is showing them grace, and they said, give us a king. Why? Because they wanted again to be like the world around them. Even as God has continued to warn them about the king, He told them, if you have a king, here's what's going to happen. He's going to take your family, He's going to take your land, He's going to put you in bondage, He's going to bring you nothing but heartache, and then they said, give us a king anyway. And this is so much like us today. God warns us, here's the consequences of sin, and we say, we don't care, we want it anyway. And the reason we say that is we truly don't believe the consequences will come. I truly believe this, nobody truly believes there is a hell that hasn't given their life to Jesus Christ. Because if you truly believe there was a hell, you would get saved. Because nobody wants to go to hell. I don't care. Well, I don't know. Hell's going to be fine with me. I'll be shaking hands with all my friends for a thousand years. No problem. Hey, guys, uh, no, you won't. Weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. Nobody wants to go there, but people act like it's not real. It's not a real consequence. They cried out for a king thinking, well, give us a king anyway because we don't really believe you, God. We believe we know better than you, God. 
That's always a big mistake when you think you know better than God. So God gives them exactly what they want. One of the worst things that can happen to you is God giving you what you ask for. You keep asking and asking and asking. God finally says, okay, here you go. Well, he gave them a king, and not only did he give them a king, he gave them the kind of king they would want. He was yoked. He was good-looking. He was charismatic. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He was the strongest guy around. Hey, this is a guy we could get behind. God not only gave them all the physical attributes they would have wanted, but in his grace, he gave them not only the, again, the spiritual attributes as well. So the Spirit of God came upon him. And then he had Samuel the prophet to counsel him. And then he surrounded him with godly men to to walk with him. And even with all of that, he starts out well, but he's not going to finish well. If you remember in chapter, back in chapter 14, they went out, or chapter 11, excuse me, they went out to their first battle, and what happened? They won. And they started to think, hey, look, we were right, God, you were wrong. See, we asked for this king, we got this king, we defeated the Ammonites, everything we thought would happen by having a king happened. And King Saul went out and fought the battle, and he raised up an army of 330,000 men, and he went out and he was victorious, and sadly, that's where men start to fall when they start to have some success, because they start to take credit. We start to think we did it. The Bible says without him we can do nothing. And so what happened was Saul started to think there was something special about him. And if you remember, one of the first things he did was he sent the army home. You know, I had 330,000 guys here. I really don't need that many. I'll just keep 3,000. Well, pride reduced his army down. Well, it wasn't long after that that things continued to get worse because now the enemy started to mount up. And when he saw the enemy getting bigger and bigger, he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and bring the sacrifice. But instead, what did he do? He made the sacrifice himself. And then when confronted with this sin, he made excuses for it. When we sin, we can do one of three things. We can make excuses, accuse others, or repent. And he made excuses and said, Oh, well, Samuel, if you had showed up on time, I wouldn't have had to make the sacrifice. I knew the enemy might attack any moment, and I didn't want to go into battle without a sacrifice. Well, right then, Samuel told him, You're not going to be, your priestly line or your line of kingdom is gone. Your kids will not be king, and you're not going to be king much longer. God is removing his hand from you, Saul. Well, when that all happened, and they saw the size of the enemy mounting up, the, his own people began to be fearful. It says they trembled to the point where they were shaking. And when they saw the size of the enemy, and that the enemy was mounting up against them, it said they hid in holes, and in caves, and in rocks. So now his pride and his disobedience has taken a 330,000 man army and turned it into 600 shaking guys. So he went from this powerful army to an army of only 600 men. Sadly, this is what happens when we take our eyes off of God and we start to put faith in our own ability. See, God had told them in the previous chapter, you know, even though you've disobeyed, if you will follow me from now on, I will bless you. But if you do wickedly, then I will bring judgment upon you. And it was right after that that we saw him go straight downhill. Because God knew his heart all along. God knew the man that he was on the inside. The choice was to be made. Fear the Lord and serve him. Remember all that he has done for you and he will bless you. Or do wickedly and know the consequences will come upon you. So if you were here last week, just real quickly, the signs that we are no longer walking in the fear of the Lord, things that we saw in King Saul, number one was pride. We allow pride to get in our way. We start to think that we're more than we are and we cease to be desperate for God. Number two was impatience. When he should have been waiting upon the Lord, he decided to make a move for God. Well, God doesn't know what he's doing. Let me, let me help him out a little bit. Well, guys, we need to slow down and let God be God. We need to slow down and wait upon him. Then he made excuses for his sin 
And then with the consequences of sin, he did not repent, but instead we saw that he continued on in his arrogant and godless ways. So in tonight's text, we're going to see a clear contrast between the type of a man the world cries out for, King Saul, and the kind of a man that God uses, his son Jonathan. King Saul, outwardly good-looking, strong, handsome, charismatic, all those things. And we see Jonathan, instead of being this man, this worldly man, from the outward appearance, he's a man who simply puts his faith in God. He's a man, we don't know a whole lot about his appearance necessarily, but we know he was a man that trusted in and loved the Lord. Worldly men look at their circumstances from a physical perspective, and godly men look at their circumstances from a heavenly perspective. The focus is not on the size of the enemy or the difficulty of the task, but the greatness of our God. And that's Jonathan, and that's the kind of man that he is. So if you're taking notes tonight, I titled the message, By Many or By Few. By many or by few. You plus God is a majority. You need to remember that. By many or by few. When our faith is put to the test, here's some things that we will see. Now look at this. In the midst of overwhelming circumstances. When is our faith put to test? In the midst of overwhelming circumstances. When our circumstances are difficult, when the trials are going on in life, that's when we find out how strong our faith it really is. Number two, when it appears that no one else is willing to stand up. When is our faith put to the test? When it seems like nobody around us is willing to make a stand for God. You know, I just saw this. Somebody sent me an email today about the memorial service for what happened in, at Virginia Tech. And, you know, 33 people were killed by a madman with a rifle, a, guy, a student on campus. And they had four speakers. They had a Muslim. They had a, a, a Jewish person. They had uh, some other secular person, and then they had a Lutheran, super uh, liberal Lutheran guy, and nobody mentioned the name of Jesus. They talked about Muhammad, they talked about where you can find peace, they talked about the inherent good in man. Let me tell you right now, man is inherently wicked. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, man is wicked, man chooses to sin, and this young man was lost and in desperate need of Jesus. And it's so sad today that we've gotten so far away that nobody's standing up for the name of Jesus Christ. One of those speakers should have been up talking about the real answer, amen? Amen. And the answer is Him. And so one of the times when we see our faith being put to the test is when nobody around us is willing to stand up. And often that's when God is telling us it's time for us to stand up. Number three, when we must put feet to our faith. When else is our faith put to the test? When we must take action. When it's no longer good enough to believe it, but now we have to do something about it. We're going to see all this in the text tonight. Number five, when our faith is put to the test, it gives us an opportunity to watch God work. Guys, when we go through the trials and the difficulties, when our faith is put to the test, that's when we get to see God work. And then lastly, it increases the faith in others. When we make a stand for God, when our faith is put to a test, often other people see it, and then they want to stand up. They see you stand up and go, hey... Maybe it's time for me to come out of my shell as well. So, by many or by few, you plus God is a majority. When, we put, when our faith is put to, to the test, number one, when is it put to the test? In the midst of overwhelming circumstances, when the odds are against us, and when the enemy seems to have the upper hand. Let's begin in verse 16 of 1 Samuel 13. It says this, Saul, Jonathan his son, and the people present with them, remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. Now, remember that now he's back in Gibeah 
But his army is all the way down to 600 people. It had been 330,000. He was prideful. He sent most of the army home thinking he didn't need them. He could handle it himself. He also circumvented God's will by making this sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel. So he wasn't waiting upon the Lord. He wasn't building up an army. Instead, he was putting faith in himself. And the result has been he's got 600 trembling guys left. The rest of his army, the other 2,400, have run away and hidden. Some have left the country completely, just completely deserting him. So now they're back in Gibeah. Now what's interesting about this is Gibeah was the place that was actually his hometown. So Saul had actually went home. He's supposed to be fighting a battle, and he went home. Saul, King Saul, was in Gilgal. He's looking across the way. He sees the enemy, and now things aren't going so well, so he ran home. He took his ball, and he went home. King Saul, this is the king you wanted. How's that working out for you guys? He went home. Now, he may have gone home hoping to stir up some more support, but I have an idea. He went home hoping things would just go away. You know, I'm just going to go home, and maybe if I just pretend like it's not happening, the enemy will leave us alone. So he goes back to Gibeah, and if you remember, Gibeah was the city where the perverted men lived who killed the Levite's concubine. So this was a very wicked city, and now you've got this king that the people have cried out for. The guy they thought, if we had a king like him, we would never have to worry again. And now they got 600 guys trembling. Everybody hiding in caves and in rocks. People have run away, and the king went home. I praise God our God doesn't go home. Amen? Amen. Aren't you glad he didn't just leave us and go, you know, I'm going home. That's it. I'm tired of you guys. Praise the Lord for that. But look what it says there. So he goes back to Gibeah. He's back in his hometown. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Now, I want you to point a couple of things out. It's only two and a half miles from Gibeah, and we're going to see that come into play in a few verses. But what's interesting is earlier, that's where Saul was. He was in Michmash, and he left there. And what's interesting is that is like the most advantageous military spot. It's got the highest elevation. It can see all around it. To get there, you have to come up to that place. And he's run to Gibeah. There's only two and a half miles away, and it's almost straight down from it. It's on another hill, but it's at a lower elevation. He's left himself wide open. So not only has he lost his army, but now he's put himself in the most disadvantaged place he can possibly be. And unless you forgot how many people are in the army of the Philistines, because he's got 600 guys, you might think, well, how many do they have? A thousand? Well, they have 30,000 chariots. Six or 8,000, I can't remember, 6,000 horsemen, I think it was. 6,000 horsemen, 30,000 chariots, and a number of men as the sand on the seashore. That's a lot more than 600. So they're looking out in this massive army. He's got 600 shaking guys, and they got the, the position where they can look down and keep an eye on him. Man, things are getting pretty overwhelming. And it's all happening because Saul is doing things his own way. He's not waiting upon the Lord. He's not trusting in the Lord. He's lost everything. And you know what? Israel, under his leadership, is outnumbered, outflanked. They're in trouble. Guys, if you put your faith in a man, you're going to end up in the same spot. Don't ever put your faith in a man. Don't ever put your trust in a man. Don't put your hope in a man. Put your faith and your hope in Almighty God. Verse 17. Then the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to the road of Orpha, to the land of Shual. Another company turned to Beth Horon. And another company turned to the road to the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. 
Well, to make this easy for you, they went north, they went west, and they went east. Basically, they, went, they came down and went out and started going into the cities where the people, children of Israel were, taking whatever they wanted, being, and again, being in a situation where they were letting everyone know who was in control, and right south of them, because he went north, west, and east, is Gibeah. So they'd gone out and covered the entire land, and right below them, two and a half miles away, sits King Saul and his 600 shaking soldiers. This is what's happening to the children of Israel because they've been trusting in a man. These Philistines had them greatly outnumbered. They were plundering at will. They were moving fearlessly throughout the land, and Israel's army was running and hiding and trembling. Why in the world should they be afraid? Israel had the king they wanted. Why are you afraid? You got your king. Here, there he is. There's your king. Why are you afraid? You know what? You brought this plundering upon yourself when you walked away from God. Guys, when we walk away from God, sin has consequences. You know the reason we've got, and I'm just going to shoot straight. Well, yeah, I know that's a shocker. But you know what? The reason our country's in the mess we're in is because we've turned our back on God. We need to get back in love with Jesus Christ and fall broken before Him. We don't need more programs. We don't need to elect the right guy, though we should vote. What we need to do is be broken before Almighty God and elevating the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to do. Get back to being a Christian nation, because we haven't been one for a long time. So Israel's got this king. He's the guy we wanted. We finally got to vote the guy in office we really wanted. Now they're outnumbered, outflanked, defenseless, and the king's hiding at home, and they're in a bad situation, and it's only going to get worse. Look at verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords and spears. So not only did they have no army, they had no weapons. They took their blacksmith away, and whenever they wanted to have anything done by a blacksmith, they had to go down to the Philistines, as we're going to see in the next few verses. So now you got an overwhelming army. they got 30,000 chariots, as we're about to find out. The, the Israelites have two swords. That's it. They got two swords. They got 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. They're all mounted up with shields. You know, guys as far as the eye can see, as the sand on the seashore, and we got two swords. Wow. How's this king thing working out for us? Not too well. I'm thinking put God back in office. Time to, okay, God, we get it. Game over. We quit. But sadly, we don't see that happening. Now understand the Philistines were a seafaring people, so they were trading with the Greeks, and they were trading with the most modern people of the day, and they had the most modern weapons and the most modern technology, and they had the numbers, they had the people, they had the position, they had everything. What did Israel have? The king they wanted, and he was at home. He went home. Thought he was E.T., he phoned home, he went home. Now verse 20. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. So the Israelites, even when they wanted to sharpen their farm tools, had to go down and ask the Philistines for a, you know, to go to their blacksmith and get permission to get their tools sharpened so that they wouldn't be making any weapons for themselves. So they had no blacksmith. They had no ability to do anything with anything metal. And it says in verse 21, And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks and the forks and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. Now these are all farming tools. The goad was the thing they did to, you know, 
really move the animals along. It was a stick with a sharp point on it. And so anytime they wanted something sharpened, they had to go down. And not only that, it says they paid a pim. That was two-thirds of a shekel, which was two-thirds of a day's wages to get their axe sharpened. So not only did they not have the ability to do it themselves, when they went to go do it, they had to pay a great deal for it because the Philistines didn't even want them to have, the, have sharp you know, farming implements. So this is the situation they're in. They're paying these huge prices, and they were outnumbered. They don't have the weapons. Verse 22. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. So the only two people that had swords were Saul and his son. The king and his son, and that's it. Nobody else. Now what's interesting is you got two guys with one sword apiece fighting a a huge battle, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, you know, men as far as the eye can see, numbering up the sand on the seashore, and we're going to see that these guys respond in two completely different ways. They both have a sword. And who is the guy that should have been leading the charge? Who is it? Saul. He's their king. We're going to find out that he's not much of a king. Now, how are they going to respond? What are they going to do with the swords that are in their hands? Only a small percentage of the people, let me say this, here's an application. Only a small percentage of the people in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, have a sword in their hand. You've got one. The Bible tells us that this is the only offensive weapon that the Word of God talks about. It is the Word of God itself. And it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And as we're going to look at and examine how Saul and Jonathan used the sword in their hand, I pray that we'll be examining in our own lives how we're using the swords that are in our hands. Guys, we need to know what this book says. We need to know how to share it with others. We need to be able to share it with great boldness and confidence. And guys, God didn't put this in your hand to act like King Saul is going to act with his sword. True understanding of God's word is key, and we need to be using the sword that God has put in our hands, just like the sword he's put in the hands of Jonathan and Saul. So Israel was small in number, had a small supply of weapons, but you know what they had? A great God. They were small in number, a small supply of weapons, but they still had a great God. Guys, our enemy is only great if our God is small. Our God is not small. They had a great God if they would simply trust him. A good place to be is where we have to trust God. Verse 23. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So a garrison, a number of these Philistine soldiers went out and were guarding the passage that led from Gibeah up to Michmash. So if anybody came out of Gibeah, they would see him coming. Right? There was a path that came down, so they went out and they mounted up and they were to watch. If anybody comes out and they come down the normal trail that people would travel on, we're going to see them coming. We'll see them coming from a great distance and we'll be able to attack them immediately. And so, not only again are they outnumbered, but the two swords with the two men are in the very city where they've got guards looking out and watching over it to see if anybody comes out. Man, is this overwhelming or what? I mean, how in the world are they ever going to have any chance in this battle? Well, there's only one way, and the only way is to keep your eyes on God and to trust in Him. Now, Michmash and Gibeah were on hills, as I said, opposite each other. Michmash was a little higher elevation. They could look down and see Gibeah. There was a route that would go between them, but we're going to see in a minute that there's a different way to get over to Michmash, but it's a difficult way 
But it's also the way that God is going to bring Jonathan in to fight with him. So by many or by few, you plus God is a majority. When, our faith, when is our faith put to test? In the midst of overwhelming circumstances, when the odds are against us, and when the enemy seems to have the upper hand. Okay, that's the first time we see our faith being put to the test. Number two, when it appears that no one else is willing to stand up. Not even those who we think should be standing up. Not even those who we think have the gift to stand up. As the only armed men, Saul and Jonathan, let's see how they react. And each man's reaction is going to give us a glimpse into their hearts spiritually. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. Now it happened one day. So this, when did it happen? When Jonathan saw that the garrison of Philistines was mounting up, was keeping an eye on what was happening in Gibeah, he saw that the, the war was hopeless all around him, and in light of what he saw, and what he saw in these people was that they were defying the armies of the living God. He looked up and saw them and said, you know what? This land doesn't belong to them. God gave it to us. And you know what? Who are these uncircumcised Philistines that will come against the true and living God? He had a spiritual perspective. And he understood that God could wipe them out even without anyone's help. So look at the responses. So Jonathan, his name means Yahweh has given. He's Saul's oldest son. Remember, he's already been out in one battle against the Philistines and he won. Remember? But remember what happened? Saul took the credit. Jonathan won the battle. Saul took the credit. He wouldn't even let his own son have the credit. This was a very prideful and arrogant man. So this was a young man of great faith. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those who are loyal to him. God is always looking out for those who will step out in believing faith that his name might be glorified. Jonathan was that kind of man. The eyes of the Lord, he's looking, Stephen now, he's looking among the whole earth. He's looking for someone who'll say, Lord, use me. You know, that's a prayer he'll answer every time. Lord, use me. Okay. Every time he'll answer that prayer. But you know what? Don't just say, Lord, use me and don't move. We need to move after we say, Lord, use me. So he said to the young man who bore his armor. Now an armor bearer, each officer had an armor bearer. And you know what? You got to like these guys. He carried Jonathan's armor. And he had to be extremely brave and extremely loyal because the life of his master often depended upon him. And later, God's going to raise up an armor bearer for King Saul. His name is David. So this armor bearer was your right-hand guy, literally. He, you know, and he had to be willing to go with you. If you're going to go out and lay your life on the line, this guy's got to go with you. So not only do we see the faith of Jonathan, but we see the faith of this unnamed armor bearer. Nobody knows his name, but you know what? He's a faithful, godly man who sees God's hand upon Jonathan and says, I want to walk with that guy. I want to hold up his hands. I want to be an encouragement to him. And you know what? If God is speaking to him, I'm going to go out with him. And he says, come let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. So the Israelites were in a military conflict where victory from all outward appearances seemed impossible. Outnumbered. Lacking in weapons, outflanked, in a bad position. Yet in the midst of all of it, when it appeared no one else would stand up, Jonathan is bold enough, bold enough to go over to the Philistine garrisons just to see what God might do. 
You know what? Let's just go over there and see if God wants to do something. You know, I love that. Because you know what? Sometimes we need to go dig a well before we find out if water's going to spring up. You know, we sit there waiting for something to happen. Sometimes God wants us just to step out. The Lord just speaks in that still, small voice and says, I want you to go over and talk to those guys. Oh, I don't think so. They're kind of radical. I don't think I want to do that. Just go over there. Now, sometimes you're going to go over there and they're going to tell you to get lost. But what have you lost? Nothing. Amen? Amen. But sometimes it's been God's divine appointment that you would talk to that person before the foundation of the world and the water, the seeds have been planted, they've been watered, and it's time for a harvest and God wants to use you. Guys, we need to be sensitive to that still, small voice. And Jonathan was saying, let's go over there. Now, his armor bearer could have said, Jonathan, are you outside of your mind? Do you see how many of them there are? And they got shields, and they got weapons, and they got chariots behind them, and they got, you know, and if, what, so let's go over there, and what if we kill them all? They, they got 30,000 guys with chariots, and come stomp us into the ground. Jonathan, you're out of your mind. He didn't say that. Okay, let's go see what God might want to do with us. While the odds were outwardly overwhelming, God had brought victory in such cases many times before. Back in Judges, Judges 3 verse 31, a man by the name of Shamgar killed 600 Philistines with a stick. You plus God is the majority. Amen? In Judges 7, Gideon's 300 men defeated a combined Midianite and Amalekite army that had at least 135,000 soldiers. 300 guys against 135,000. How does that happen? Because God's on your side. That's the only way it can happen. God must be on your side. Now, Jonathan, again, being no doubt a man of the word, knew this. Joshua 23 says this, One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised. One will chase a thousand. So Jonathan's going, dude, we got two. There ain't 2,000 guys on that hill. Let's go get them. One will chase a thousand. God's on our side. Let's go see if God wants to do something. And when we get to Samuel, we're going to, or Saul, we're going to see not quite the, the same heart and the same attitude. And again, this is not their land, it's God's land. And we know God can do it. And why not now? Why not through me? This is, this is his attitude. God wants to do it. Why not use me? Lord, I'm here. I'm available. Lord, I don't think there's anything special about me. But Lord, I know you can use even me if you choose to. So Lord, I'm going to step out and just see what happens. Praise God for people like Jonathan. Here I am, Lord. And God, by His Spirit, will move those who are simply willing and available to do great things. You know, most of the time, people don't envision it's going to be a great thing. They just say yes, Lord, to a simple thing. And then God does a great thing. Now again, we're not, we're of Jesus Christ. We're not of, you know, it's not about Calvary Chapel. It's about Jesus Christ. But you know what's interesting? The way this movement started was a man by the name of Chuck Smith had a burden for the hippies. And he got tired of teaching topical messages because every two years he'd run out of messages. So he'd have to go find a new church because he had 100 messages and after two years he was all done. So he had nothing left. So he thought, well, I just want to teach through the Bible. Well, the people said, well, no, you can't do that. Then You can't just teach through the Bible. So he found a church with 25 people that happened to be named Calvary Chapel who would let him teach through the Bible. And he started teaching through the Bible and then the Jesus movement happened through the simple teaching of the whole counsel of God, verse by verse. When he took that church, there's no way he could have imagined what God has done. Now there are thousands of churches all over the world and millions of people have gotten saved because one guy said, I'll go take that church of 25 people and just teach the word of God and do it without compromise. Guys, it's when we make the little step, we have no idea what great things are behind it. And Jonathan just said, okay, you know what? 
All I know is those guys are right there. And they're right there. And I, you know what? The land belongs to God. I'll go over there. Maybe God wants to do something. Let's find out. He can use me, even me. Let's go and face the enemy. Then it says, but he did not tell his father. Now, why would he not tell his dad? Let me tell you why I believe. I believe that his dad would have told him not to go. You know, his dad, Saul, King Saul, wanted all the glory, but he didn't want to do any of the battling or any of the fighting. You know, if all the enemy just fell over and died, that'd be real convenient for him, and then he could have a parade unto himself. But here's the problem. Jonathan's heart was to honor the Lord. Now, you might say, now, this is a conflict. The Bible says, honor your mother and father. You know what? We do honor your mother and father, but it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I've heard guys say, you know, well, if you're, if you're 28 years old and your parents tell you not to go to church, you should obey them. Uh, not, no, no, not, not going to happen. No, praise God, i got Christian parents. But if my parents ever called me and told me I'm not, not to go to church, I'd say, sorry, I love you, but I'm going anyway. Because we obey God, amen? amen? Now, when someone's 12 or 13, again, you obey your parents, you honor them, you live by the rules of their house, but you know what? They can't keep you from praying, they can't keep you from reading the word, do that, amen? And so what's happening here is he knows at the heart of his dad, he sees what his dad is up to, and he says, you know what? God's told me, God's put, moved on my heart, and I'm going to go, and so he didn't involve his father. Now look what his father is doing. So you got two guys with swords, one guy says, let's go over there and see if God wants to do something great. Now what's the other guy with the sword doing? Verse 2, and Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. Dude is sitting under a tree, holding on to his sword. My sword and my sword. I'm keeping this. Anybody comes, I'm going to have my sword. I got sword. I, yeah, I'm going to have my sword. You know, he didn't give it away, nothing. He just held on to his sword, set under a pomegranate tree, and his son is taking his sword and going out to do battle against the enemy and willing to lay down his life. Guys, this is a clear picture for us. What are we doing with the word of God that he's put into our hands? Are we sitting under a tree and keeping it to ourselves? Or are we sharing it with a lost and dying world that desperately needs to hear about the love of Jesus Christ? Which is it? This is my Bible. I'm told to myself. This is mine. I'm just going to keep it. I'm gonna... Guys, we need to know the word, but we need to start living it. Amen? Amen. We, need to, we need to put it into action. What a contrast. Saul hiding. You know what's interesting? He's hiding in the shade. It's hot outside. I'm going to go sit in the shade. I'm the king. Nice king you got here. So Saul's hiding, knowing that he had fallen out of God's favor. Here's what I believe. Because remember, Samuel had told him in the previous chapter, God's hand is no longer on you. And then when he saw the size of the enemy, he thought, well, God's hand's not on me. I go out there. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to die. So I'm going to sit under a tree and hold on to my sword and be in the shade and just hope that the battle goes away. You know what, guys? No one can ever see themselves as safe if they're living outside of God's will. You can try to hide from God. God knows exactly where you are. He loves you. He desires to have a relationship with you. But Saul is sitting and hiding with the 600 men surrounding him to protect him. And Jonathan, all by himself with his armor bearer, is going out to fight the enemy. Man, what an incredible contrast between these two men with the swords in their hand. He says, in a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, the people who were with him were about 600 men. So again, he's got guys with him to protect him, but yet he's hiding and he's not engaging in battle. Verse 3. Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, 
but they did not know that Jonathan had gone. So not only did he have 600 men, he also had the high priest with him. So the high priest, it's interesting that it mentions there Ichabod. Ichabod was the son born to Phineas's wife right after Phineas was killed, after they had taken the ark out into battle and had been captured by the Philistines. And when she had a, a premature child, she named him Ichabod. And Ichabod means the glory has departed. And I find it interesting that the name Ichabod is in this verse with King Saul sitting under a tree, hiding from the enemy, holding on to his sword with 600 guys around him, unwilling to go out into battle, knowing that God's hand was no longer upon him. Guess what? The glory had departed. Glory was no longer there. God's hand was no longer on him. And you know what? If God's hand's not on you, I guess under a pomegranate tree is just as good a place as any. Now... He had access to the priest. He had access to the ark, as we're going to see later. And sadly, he's in rebellion against God. Guys, here's the thing. You can have all the priests in the world around you. You can have the ark of the covenant in your living room. And you know what? Religion will not save you. And all the religious rituals in the world will not save you. And having all the things, you know, the crosses hanging around your neck and beads in your hand and every ritual under the sun. If you do not know the true and living God and have a relationship with him, religion is meaningless. You know what? Many people have said, Jesus said, well, stand before me and say, I, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. And I'll say, depart from me, for I know you not. Guys, it's not about knowing about Jesus Christ. It's about having an intimate relationship with him. Is he your best friend? Do you know him in an intimate and a personal way? Or is he a faraway, distant God? He's only as far away from you as you want him to be. His desire is to be close to you. And have intimate fellowship with you. So he's got all the religious trappings around him. But you know what? He's not walking with God. Now wearing an ephod, just real quickly, what does that mean? It was a a priestly garment. They put the breastplate over it. And inside of it, it had these pockets. And they would reach into the pockets and they would pull out the urim and the thummim. Those black stones and white stones. Two white stones, two black stones. And when they would pull them out, it would let them know if the answer was yes or the answer was no. And so what he had was a way of, in his mind, seeking God's direction without knowing God. And so he had this priest there, but, and rather than repent, he just tries to manipulate God using religious articles. It says there also that people did not know where Jonathan had gone. You know what? He was where Saul should have been. If Saul had been where he should have been, he would have seen Jonathan because he would have been standing right next to him. But instead, he was hiding under a tree. You know what? We're going to see this happen again. And it's going to happen with Jonathan's best friend. Because when Goliath, when they're fighting, going out to fight the Philistines later, Goliath comes down and challenges them to send out your greatest warrior. And if I win, you serve us. But if your warrior wins, we will serve you. And 40 days and 40 nights, he comes down and challenges them. And who's the king? Saul. And yet Saul won't go. And who does? David shows up and says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against the true and living God? And what does he do? He goes down without any armor on and whips him with a slingshot. You know why? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Is it any wonder that Jonathan and David end up being best friends? Both of these guys are built from the same cloth. They're both filled with the Holy Spirit. They both see things from a spiritual perspective. That's why these guys had a love for each other as, as brothers. So by many or by few... When, our, when is our faith put to the test? In the midst of overwhelming circumstances and when it appears that no one else is willing to stand up. That's a time when our faith is being put to the test, when we're being challenged to stand up. Verse 4. Now what's going to happen next? 
Notice that when our faith is put to the test is when we must put our feet to our faith. You know, our faith is put to the test when now we have to do something about our faith. It's not just believing in our head, but it's actions being shown out in in our lives. Now look what happens. Again, this is the the third point. Truth faith produces an action. Now look what it says in verse 4. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. The name of one was Bozes and the name of the other was Sina. Now what's interesting, there was a path, but instead of going down the path, Jonathan decides, I'm going to crawl down this side of this hill and I'm going to crawl up the other side of the hill and go up and fight those guys. Or at least start heading in that direction. But for him to go, the word bozes means slippery, and the word sina means thorny. So you got a slippery rocky on one side and a thorny rocky place on the other side, and he's going to go down the slippery side and go up the thorny side. Now guys, when we step out for God, it doesn't mean it's always going to be smooth sailing. Sometimes, you know, often we're going to step out for God and we're going to face some resistance. Because we battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil forces of darkness and high places. And sometimes you say, man, I stepped out for the Lord and things got really tough. Well, guess what? Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake. It just means God is using you. Amen? So that if the heat gets turned up, it just means that God is doing things in your life. So there was going to, it was, there was a path heading up to, to confronting these guys, but it was not going to be an easy path to take. Doesn't always result in a smooth ride when we step out for the Lord. Verse 5. The front one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. So again, they were facing each of these places. He's crawling down one, and he's going to crawl up the other. Verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these what? These uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Now, I love this. He's saying uncircumcised not because of the physical act itself, just saying they have no covenant with God. Let's go over to those who have no covenant with God, and God is going with us, and it may be that the Lord wants to do a work in us. Jonathan is going after the Philistines. While others were hiding, others were fleeing, others were you know, just sitting under a tree holding on to their sword, He saw things from a spiritual perspective and no number of men or sharpness of rock is going to discourage this guy because he sees the enemy through the eyes of Almighty God. He sees him as uncircumcised, those who the land did not belong to them. God is greater than they are. Guys, if our enemies are strangers of God, we have nothing to fear. Sounds like another, again, young man, David, who would say the very same thing. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That comes against my God. Now he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Now, he's not just going out to to check out the soldiers. He's going out there saying, Lord, if I go out and all you want me to do is go out there and look, okay. But Lord, if you have more, I'm willing. It may be that the Lord wants me to move halfway around the world. It may be that God wants me to quit my job and go into full-time ministry. It may be that God wants me to do this. Radical transformation in my life. And Lord, I'm willing if that's what you want. And this is Jonathan's heart as he steps out. He wanted to see what God could do through two who would trust in him and step out boldly. Guys, there comes a time when we must put feet to our faith. It's not enough for Jonathan to sit up there and go, you know, we should go fight those guys. You know what? Somebody needs to step up. Can I tell you, 
don't do that to me because you're volunteering yourself. People come up and go, you know what ministry we really need at this church, Pastor? We really need this. Oh, sounds like you've got a burden for that. Well, no, I didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't. Somebody needs to do it, not me though, right? Here's the point. If you see the need, often that's a burden is the spawning ground of a calling, Amen. And God had stirred up Jonathan, and Jonathan didn't just say, hey, someone needs to go. He said, you know what? Let's go. Turned his armor bearer. Bro, let's go. I believe if his armor bearer had said, I'm not going, he would have gone anyway. But praise God for the armor bearer being willing to go with him. Now, let me say this. Look what it says. Look at this. I love this. If you underline stuff in your Bible, underline this. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. By many or by few. Jonathan knew it wasn't the size of the army, but the greatness of his God. And those who take a stand for God are almost always outnumbered. Almost always. Noah. (laughs) Noah. 120 years building the boat and sharing. Guys, rain's coming. You know it had never rained before? So telling people water's going to fall from the sky, you might as well be telling them that there's going to be ponies falling out of the sky. I mean, there's been no water ever fall out of the sky before. There's going to be water fall out of the sky. So much that the earth's going to be flooded. And you know what, dude? You need to get right with God. 120 years. How many people believed him? His family. That's it. And and they might not have a choice. You're going. That's it. You're getting on the boat. That's all that's happening, right? (laughs) Here's the point, 120 years, nobody. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Everybody is bowing to the false god, and three guys stood up and said, no, we're not bowing. Three guys. Put them in the fiery furnace, we know what happens. You know, I love that story, because King Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, who is a god that will deliver you out of my hand? And then they throw him in the fire, and he looks in, and they're standing in the fire. And Jesus is in the fire with them. And then he look in and go, he comes in, you know, who is a God that will deliver you out of my, come out, come out, you servants of the most high God. I mean, it's amazing how quickly that guy's attitude changes, but it only happened because three guys stood up when nobody else would. And again, the same is true of Daniel and Joshua and Moses. There's no limit to what God can do with one person that will obey. There's no limit to what God will do. If just one person will stand up and say, you know what, and, and have faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I haven't seen it, God, I trust you. Jonathan's got, got to be thinking, you know, if he had been thinking about it, I'm going to go up there. Now, what happens if I even get up there? I got two people. I'm the only one with a sword. He's just carrying my stuff. What am I going to do when I get up there? You know what he said? God, I don't know what I'm going to do, but God, I know that you know. So God, I'm willing to go because God, I trust you. God's not looking for able, but available men. And Jonathan, more than believed it in his head, he took actions. Nothing restrains the Lord. Do we really believe that? If we really believed it, then we would do something about it. The only thing that can restrain God from doing a great work in your life is your own unbelief. The only thing, because he won't force it, but he's willing to do it if we will simply let him. God's power is never restrained, but only happens again when we walk in unbelief. Whether by many or by few. Numbers, circumstances mean nothing to God. You plus God is a majority. Jonathan's faith, not in himself, but in the Lord, is the reason that God is going to use him. Verse 7. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. Man, I love this guy. Armor bearer says, dude, I think that's the Lord. Let's go. 
Now again, it's a lot easier to say that than to really do it. I mean, everybody else is hanging out under the pomegranate tree. People are hiding. People are running away. And this guy says, you know what, bro? I'm with you. Let's go get him. And he walks with him. What an incredible man of faith in his own right. He recognized God's calling upon his life. He saw his master's heart and he followed. Jonathan, again, is a man that God can bring victory through even with a man like me. That's his heart. You know, God, you can bring a victory even through a man like me. Not because I'm great, but because you're great. And Lord, I trust you. And just as important would be this precious man who would walk with him. I truly believe this. God rarely calls someone all by themselves. Usually when he calls somebody, he calls other people to walk with them, to pray for them, to stand next to them. You know, praise God that when we came to Santa Cruz to plant a church, that there were several families that had a burden to come here and be a part of it from day one. And I can't tell you what an incredible blessing that has been ever since. Verse 8, then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. Now I love this because Saul's hiding under a tree and Jonathan says, let's just crawl down there and stand right in front of him. You know, if God's going to give us a victory, we don't got to hide, we don't got to sneak up, nothing. Let's just go down there and go, ah, yeah, I'm right here, right? I mean, right? <laughs> Guys, the same is true. We don't need to be undercover with the gospel. We don't need to hide it, bury it, sneak it in, bring it around the back corner. Let's just stand up front and speak the truth in love and do it with great boldness because that's when God's going to do a great work. Great Amen? Instead of this, well, let's just water down. Let's hide it. Let's not let them really know that we're even a church. Let's just name ourselves something totally ambiguous so nobody knows what it is. And then let's just have people come think that they're going to a petting zoo. And then we'll just drop in a little bit of something that might make them think about God someday. No. <laughs> hide it under a bush. Oh, no. I'm going to let it shine. Amen. And he goes down and says, let's just go down and just wave at him. We're here. Well, that's what they do. Look at verse 9 and 10. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say to us, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. Now, this sign is a lot different than the sign of Gideon. Gideon, God had already told him what to do, and he was changing the fleece law about eight times. You know, well, what if it, if it rains everywhere else, then that's God. Well, no, if it just rains there, then it's God. And he was trying to get out of it. Jonathan's just the opposite. He believes that God's speaking to him. He wants to make sure he's hearing from God, and it's not just his idea. So he says, okay, God, here, I'll go down there, and if they, if they want to come down to us, we'll just stand there. But if they call us up, Lord, we're going to go and charge the mountain because, God, you're on our side. Wow. Now, I'm thinking if they said, hey, guys, come on up here and crawl up those jagged rocks up here and through those thorns. Come on up here. I'm thinking I might have worked it the other way. Well, God, if you really want us to fight them, have them all fall down the hill or something, right? (laughs) But God blessed these guys that they really had faith. And they said, Lord, if it's your will, God will direct the steps of even those who who acknowledge him in all their ways. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. When God gives him the the sign, you know what he's going to do? He's going to obey. God's going to show him exactly what he asked for, and he's going to obey. Look at verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they have hidden. Now look at this. So they make a stand for God, and it got easy, right? No, the enemy mocked them. Oh, look, some of the, Philist- some of the Hebrews have come out of, their- come out of their holes. Oh, you guys must have been hiding. What, you want to give up? What are you guys doing? Look at verse 12. 
Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us. He said, Yes, Lord. Right? Come up to us. Well, that's God. Okay. Let's go get him. Now, I love this. Come up to us and we will show you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Now, is this faith or what? In verse 6, he said, it may be the Lord. He might want to use us. Now, he's at the bottom of a thorny hill. Going to have to crawl up on his hands and knees to fight this garrison full of guys that are loaded to bear with weapons, holding shields in their hands. He's got a sword and a guy behind him carrying his stuff. And he says, and God has given us the victory. <laughs> Dude, now that's faith, amen? He starts crawling on his hands and knees. Now, this doesn't make any military sense, does it? When you're fighting a battle, don't get on your hands and knees. You don't want to do that. And don't crawl to guys who are standing above you with swords in their hands. It's not good. You don't want to do that. But you know what? Our God is greater than any military strategy. Look at verse 13. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And as he came up after him, his armor bearer killed them. So... His arm bearer had, you know, he didn't have a sword, so I don't know if he had a plowshare in his hand or what. We don't know. But Jonathan's faith is now so strong that no obstacle is going to stand in his way. He's climbing up on his all fours through, on a thorny hill, and instead of, of slaying Jonathan, they fell before him. You know why? It wasn't those men against Jonathan. It was those men against Almighty God. Amen. And the battle had already been won, and all he was looking for was a guy to say, I'll go. Lord, if you want to use me, even me, I'll go. I'm, there's nothing special about me, but God, you're a great God, and if you want to use me. So Jonathan is the tool that brought the victory. Look at verse 14. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men with half, within a half an acre of land. So they got one sword, and I don't know what else, a stick or a plowshare that's not even sharp, and they're up there fighting 20 guys, and they kill them all in half an acre of land. Now, what's great about this is that Jonathan shows up but now God's going to show up in an even greater way. Jonathan, God's with him from the beginning, but now God's going to do something supernatural. So when our faith is put to the test, here's what else it does. It gives us an opportunity to watch God work. Look at verse 15. And there was trembling in the camp and in the field and among the people. And the garrison and the raiders also trembled. And the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. You know what happened? God said, you know what? You don't have any swords. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make the earthquake. I'm going to confuse the tar out of them. And they're just going to start killing each other. When we get to the rest, of, that's what happens. So these guys, the earth starts shaking. Now it's interesting. King Saul has a bunch of guys who are shaking following him. And Jonathan goes up and God shakes the world, shakes the earth, and has all the Philistines shaking before him because he trusts in God. Man, what a great picture. When a guy's trusting in his flesh, he's got a bunch of guys shaking behind him. And when a guy trusts in God, they're shaking before Almighty God because God is with him. Jonathan, sword in his hand. God using him mightily and his dad's probably napping under the pomegranate tree. Sad. So Jonathan steps out in faith with no idea how God was going to bring the victory. God brought an earthquake. Jonathan did his part. God responded in great power. The earth shook. And again, it brought comfort to Jonathan, and it shook up the enemy. Last point. When our faith is put to the test, it increases the faith of others to come out of hiding and to enter the battle. The Philistines' confidence 
was in their swords. And it's soon going to melt away in mass confusion. They're going to start killing each other. And then we're going to see the rest of the children of Israel who've been trembling and hiding in holes step up because one guy was willing to stand for God. Look at verse 16. It says, Now the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was a multitude melting away, and they went here and there. Now imagine what that looked like. They're up and they're looking up, and there's this mass of people, and all of a sudden they just start melting away. They're running away. There's, a, there's mayhem over there, and they're standing there watching this happen. And they can't figure out what in the world was going on. The victory was so great that soon Saul took notice. He should have been fighting in the battle, but instead he sees them melting away. Verse 17. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when he had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So that means nobody else was fighting. Nobody else was in the battle. They're all shaking, hiding in holes, running away. Two guys go over, fight the enemy, and he finds out. Now, Jonathan is the man who brought the first victory against the Philistines. He's bringing the next one, again, not because of his greatness, because he trusts in the greatness of God. And again, he saw this as God's hand upon him. He was willing to step out. We're almost done. Verse 18. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. So he's already got the priest. Now he wants to bring the ark. Let me get as many religious things around me as I can. And the truth is, he's not seeking God. Instead, he's trying to manipulate God to get what he wants. So he brings the religious articles around him, but he has no communication with the true and living God whatsoever. He's not seeking out godly wisdom and direction so they might bring glory to his name. He's trying to use religious insight to force God's hand to bring glory to himself. You know, often when we don't get the answer we want, we go to try to find someone else to give us the answer we want. Samuel already told him what to do. He disobeyed. Now he's trying to manipulate God. It's not going to work out too well. Verse 20, or verse 19. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which is in the camp of the Philistines, continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. And he's telling him, pull out those stones and tell me whether or not we're supposed to go. He's trying to force the hand of God. He's impatient. Yet again, remember he made the sacrifice before instead of waiting. Now he's trying to manipulate the priest to get the answer that he wants instead of waiting upon the Lord. Last four verses. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went down to battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was great confusion. This is what I was telling you about. The earthquake, there was confusion. Now the Philistines are turning and killing each other. Moreover, the Hebrews, who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Here's what's interesting. Some guys who had abandoned Israel and gone to fight with the Philistines, as soon as there was one guy standing up for Almighty God and the earth was quaking, they ran back to serve with God again. You know what? When you make a stand before Almighty God, God may use you even to touch the heart of someone who's in complete rebellion against God, someone who's backslidden, someone who's walked away completely. They see you on fire for God and they remember yet again what it was like to walk with God and they want to go back to serving the Lord. That's what happens here. Because one guy was willing to stand up when nobody else would. His faithfulness touches all of Israel and even impacts those who had deserted and gone to the Philistines. Verse 22, Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines had fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. What happened? One guy stood up, 
Everybody came out of their holes. One guy makes a stand in your office and boldly proclaims the truth and does it in love. And all of a sudden, you find out there's a bunch of more Christians in your office. It's amazing. Let me encourage you something. Start a Bible study at work and see what happens. God put it in my heart years ago. and started out, Everywhere I worked, I always started a Bible study. And you'd be amazed how many people would come out of the woodwork when you start a Bible study. And God began to use that. They called us at my last job the God Squad. And they didn't mean it in a favorable way, but we didn't mind it at all. It's okay. It's a blessing. It's how I met Pastor Joe in the Bible study at Pac Bell in San Jose. Verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Now, Jonathan stepped out, but who saved Israel? The Lord did. The Lord saved Israel. It was the Lord that brought victory. Not the faithless, self-centered, fearful king they had cried out for. How's that king working out so far? Dude, that king you wanted? There he is. And you know what? You're stuck with him for a while. They're going to have this guy another 30 years or so. You think you're done with him? No, not, not yet. He's just going to keep blowing it. It's only going to get worse. Jonathan was a tool in the hands of the master. He and his armor bearer trusted God when no one else would. When the only other one with a sword was hiding under a pomegranate tree. Here's my question to all of us. What are you doing with the sword that's in your hand? What are you doing with the gifts that God's giving you? You know what, guys? Our life is but a vapor. We're going to blink and we're going to be before Almighty God. And when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. We're not going to have another opportunity to come back and share the gospel with people. We're not going to have a chance to share with the the person down the street that desperately needs to hear about the Lord, to use the gifts God has given us. Guys, let's get our eyes off the stuff that's temporary and get our eyes on the eternal. Let's start being burdened for the lost. Let's start seeing the world through the Lord's eyes. Are you like Saul, hiding and hoping that the battle will go away? Or are you like Jonathan, available to be used by God, walking in faith, excited about the battle? God saved each one of us for a reason, and He wants to use us for His glory. Whether by many or by few, God wants to do a great work. Let's stand for Him. Let's trust Him to win the battle, and know that your faith will encourage others. So in closing, by many or by few, you plus God is a majority. When is our faith being put to the test? In the midst of overwhelming circumstances. It's a chance for us to stand up for God. When it appears that no one else is willing to stand up, that's when your faith is being put to the test. When we must put feet to our faith. When we must not just believe it in our heart, but take action. That's when our faith is being put to the test. When it gives us an opportunity to watch God work. You know, when our faith is being put to a test... We get to see God work in a mighty way. And then lastly, it increases the faith in others. People will come out of hiding and will enter the battle often when they see just one person who says, Lord, here I am, use me. Guys, I pray that we would not be undercover Christians. I pray that we would not be happy sitting under a tree somewhere holding on to our sword, but that we would enter the battle because we love the Lord and we're burdened for people. We want to see them saved. We want to see people. Aren't you glad someone shared their faith with you? Aren't you glad that people prayed for you, people reached out to you in love? Guys, every believer this side of heaven should be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Lord, I do pray that, Lord, when our faith is put to the test, Lord, that we would grow, that we would step out, Lord, that we would learn. Father, I pray and ask in Jesus' name that we would have the heart of Jonathan to say, here I am, Lord, use me. Lord, 
I believe you can use even me, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. Lord, show us the thorny hills you want us to crawl up. Lord, show us the people that you want us to go and engage with the truth of the gospel. Lord, show us the places where you want us to step out in faith that it might encourage others who are undercover. Father, we want our lives to count for eternity. We love you. We praise you. We worship you, Lord. You are a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.